Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, September 23rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We gave Adam a break from COVID-19 talk last week, so naturally we have to double up this week. And for good reason. Our colleague Helen Branswell has an incredible story out this week about what this winter may have in store. She joins us to discuss it. I appreciate that, Damien. (laughs) Next up, you've heard his advice for grilling, but did you know that former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb has also some thoughts on the pandemic? His new book was released Tuesday, and we go in-depth with him on what went wrong, beyond the obvious, and how to prevent this from happening again. We'll start with a look at the week in biotech. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. My name is Maria. My name is Danielle, and Maria and I are the new hosts of Genentech's award-winning podcast, Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. It's a show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Aww. So Maria, true story, is from the UK. She's into clinical data, transcription factors, and long runs on the beach. That's right. And Danielle is from Texas. She loves translational medicine, woodworking, and getting up close and personal with cancer cells. And when we're not botching each other's accents, you can usually find us chatting up other scientists about all kinds of cutting edge research. So grab a drink and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcasts or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash podcast. So Adam, let's start by talking about what you did last night. It would normally not be something so exciting, but (laughs) now it is. I know I had fun. Yeah, I discovered these places called bars. It's a bar and you go and there's drinks and then there's a band who's playing live music. Those all sound like terrifying things. It was a great time. I actually went out last night to see a friend's band called Graveyard of the Atlantic to give them a little bit of a plug. They're a local Boston band. And they actually have a biotech connection because uh, their lead guitarist, Dave DeBaney, uh, is married to Manisha Pai, who does IR at Vertex Pharmaceuticals. So shout out to those guys. And and we had a great time last night. It was my it was my first bar experience Uh post-COVID, or we're not post-COVID, but like since since COVID. <laughs> During COVID, um, since yeah. COVID. And I, so what were the like vaccine requirements? Yes. Who was wearing masks? How did you drink right. a drink through a mask? Yeah, and that was kind didn't... of that was kind of an interesting thing. So when you when you got and this is like a divey bar, but when you got to the bar, the the woman, the very nice woman who was working the door, took my five dollars cover charge, also asked me for proof of vaccination. So I showed her uh, a photo of my vaccine card. Uh, and you know she didn't card me, thank God, because I'm you know 500 years old. Um, but yeah, then then you're in, and, and you have to wear masks, so you wear masks in the bar. So like, did you drink anything? Like, what do you? <laughs> I, do you put a I, straw <laughs> through the side of your N95? Like, yeah, that was that was kind of the weird thing because I kept I did drink. Um, I had a couple of beers, and yeah, you, I had to keep pulling the mask down to to drink, obviously. But uh, but all in all, it was uh, it was really fun. And it's something that I look forward to doing more of as uh, we get rid of COVID, hopefully. So speaking of being rid of COVID, or ideally being rid of COVID, uh, the big news this week, I guess, on that front was this ongoing situation with 
uh, booster doses and who ought to get them and when they might be available and which governmental authority gets to decide that. So Meg, where are we, you know, as of the moment of this recording? Well, this is a Thursday morning. So we are uh, halfway through CDC's advisory committee's two-day meeting on this very topic. And as my husband put it last night, as I was like fielding phone calls while trying to make dinner, just working like a long day covering this entire thing. And the FDA was like rumored to be coming out with its decision. He was like, there are so many steps in this process and all of them are breaking news. I was like, you just basically <laughs> described the last year and a half of my life. Um, but he's right. I mean, it's it's kind of absurd. He's like, didn't the FDA already decide on this on Friday? And I was like, no, that was just its advisory group. And then the FDA has to decide and the CDC's advisory group meets and then the CDC director signs off on it. And then we get to use the booster shots. So that's essentially where we are now. The FDA has authorized Pfizer's booster for people six months out from their primary vaccination people 65 and older, people who are at high risk of severe outcomes of COVID, and people who have high risk of exposure through their jobs and thus are at uh, higher risk of severe outcomes of COVID. And Dr. Janet Woodcock, the acting FDA commissioner, specified in the FDA's release that includes folks like teachers and daycare workers, grocery store workers, and people who are in prisons and homeless shelters. So the FDA kind of saying who they think this should be given to, That's the purview of the CDC's advisory committee. So we'll hear their recommendations Thursday afternoon and a vote as well. And then this basically gets, you know, available ostensibly only to people who got Pfizer the first time around. But as we talk about with Helen Branswell later in the episode, it may not be that cut and dry. Uh, There was also a ton of other COVID news this week. Uh, Monday morning, we woke up to Pfizer's uh, results for kids ages 5 to 11. And so we're now we're talking about a vaccine for kids by Halloween. Tuesday, we woke up to Johnson & Johnson putting like four studies worth of information into one very long press release uh, where they talked about their second shot two months later. They talked about their second shot six months later. But don't worry, guys, the first dose still provides long-lasting protection was essentially the gist of that. Um, whether we start to hear more about J&J uh, getting used around the world as a single shot vaccine is an open question and probably a very important one. Um, and then we got some news on remdesivir being used uh, on people who are not yet hospitalized. You have to get three days of IV treatment. It suggested that can keep you out of the hospital as potentially as well as monoclonal antibodies, but it was kind of a funny study. They stopped enrolling early in April. And who's going to get three days of IV treatment, um, you know? Yeah, I, the remdesivir news, I mean, to your point, that that's not a very practical thing for someone who is not hospitalized, who's recently diagnosed. But to the extent there's a silver lining, like we already know that the monoclonal antibodies, as you mentioned, do a similar job and are more convenient. But remdesivir being effective as an antiviral could be a good sign for the oral antivirals that we've spoken about um, from Merck, a company called the TF Pharmaceuticals and, and a company called Pfizer um, that are now in development. They're not they don't have the same mechanism per se, but just the notion that remdesivir could have an effect in that stage. It could be, you know, reason for optimism about these infinitely more convenient uh, oral treatments that are coming through the pipeline. Uh, and shifting gears, uh, Damien, you and I were busy writing a story about, or t- we're taking a closer look at a, a certain uh, Alzheimer's drug. That's right. So yeah, Adju Helm, the uh, star of this podcast, um, or I guess co-star to COVID-19, that's probably too glib. Anyway. I thought I was the star of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
so yeah, so you know, we learned from Biogen a couple weeks ago that the commercial launch of Aduhelm, their infinitely discussed treatment for Alzheimer's disease, was going more slowly than the company had anticipated, and and thus than really everyone else had, or at least Wall Street had. Uh, what they didn't mention in that disclosure was just how many patients had been treated with the drug, and you and I um, learned that one hundred patients, right. Which is, which is a small number. I mean, to put it in, in context, you know, Adjuhelm was approved in June. Um, and as of September 11th, about 100 people have received the drug on a commercial basis outside of a clinical trial. And based on basically Wall Street's estimates of how much money Biogen would make on Adjuhelm in, in 2021, basically they thought thousands of patients would be getting the drug by now. The fact that it's only about 100... Um, is really cause for a lot of pondering and a lot of revisiting expectations. And, and you know, Biogen came clean, I think, a little bit about what the challenges are. And, and they're basically, one, a lot of people, uh, physicians, scientists, and even some patients, are really skeptical as to whether this drug works for the reasons that we've discussed for months and months and months and months. But then furthermore, the infrastructure to... Uh, it's an infused therapy, uh, and it's infused once a month, is not necessarily in place for people to even get on it, even if they are prescribed the drug. And then three, the the, the really massive thing is that Biogen chose to charge an average of $56,000 a year for this medicine, which added to the skepticism over its efficacy, has led to hospital groups, insurers, and, and largely Medicare really in a tough spot in deciding whether to pay for this. And so, you know, Medicare is deliberating, a lot of groups are deferring to them, and basically Biogen is kind of caught in this position where they got what they wanted in the form of this FDA approval, but a confluence of factors, some of which are under their control and some of which are not, have made it to where this drug is just not really ending up in patients. As your next scoop on Aduhelm, <laughs> I would like you guys to focus in on how they reached the $56,000 price and if it was a push from the board or if it was some other. All right, we'll work on that. Thanks, guys. Winter is coming. Again. That is the lead of a new story from our colleague Helen Branswell, which continues, A year ago, experts warned that the United States faced a grim winter if Americans didn't mask up and social distance to slow transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 virus before indoor weather, aka winter, settled in for its long stay. We all know how well that warning was heated. In January, cases topped 300,000 a day, and COVID ended the lives of about 95,000 Americans before the month was out. And joining us to discuss the fact that winter is coming is Helen Branswell. Helen, thanks for joining us again. Hi, good to be with you. So, Helen, I just absolutely love this story that you wrote this week because I feel like experts so infrequently are willing to actually talk about what could happen. And you managed to get a lot of really fantastic ones to talk with you about that for this upcoming winter. And of course, you know, the, the most predominant feeling is uncertainty. But you also quoted some modelers who say things could be looking up from here. Can you tell us about that? Let's start with a little hope. Sure. Um, so I, I was, you know, quite uncertain about what to think would be coming this winter uh, myself. So I did reach out to a bunch of people. And um, one of the people I spoke to was uh, Cecile Vibo, who is a um, epidemiologist and modeler 
who works at the Fogarty International Center at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, she and a group there are monitoring nine modeling efforts on an ongoing basis. And what she said is that the models point to the Delta wave sort of subsiding in this country um, in late November, sort of just after Thanksgiving, and getting to the point where transmission could be quite low, sort of down into the 10 to 15,000 cases a day range. And she said, you know, once it gets down there, it could stay there for a while with the big caveat of, you know, as long as there is no new variant that is um, able to either uh, escape immunity or become more transmissible still than the Delta variant. And Helen, obviously Thanksgiving and Christmas are big travel periods for Americans. Does, does her model factor in that the fact that people will be traveling during that time period? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, last year, we, you know, we really saw the effect of, of people getting together for uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas in the disease um, levels that happened after that period. Uh, yes, the models do factor that in. They do look fairly promising as long as there are new new variants coming at us in the near term. So, you know, happening uh, really as as we speak is the debate, which seems somewhat settled over just when and for whom booster shots of COVID-19 vaccines will be available in the United States. How does that factor into how epidemiologists and others are looking at this winter, knowing that, you know, some some millions of people will be able to get third doses of vaccine? Um, I think this modeling work that I that we've been talking about, I'm not sure that it, it um, factors in third doses. I think, you know, it's looking at sort of the amount of immunity there is in the population, both from you know, existing doses that have been administered and the amount of infection that has occurred in the country. But obviously, if people start to get their doses, immunity rates will go up and that would contribute to uh, lessening spread of the of the virus. So let's talk about the news this week about the boosters. Helen, I was following your live tweeting of the um CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices meeting on Wednesday, and we're recording this Thursday morning, so we're expecting to get their vote this afternoon uh, by the time a lot of people are listening to this. But on Wednesday night, the FDA authorized Pfizer's booster. Um, And on Twitter, before that happened, you noted, it seems pretty clear that the rollout of a booster shot program is going to be messy as hell. And I think a lot of people agree with you. What's your take on essentially where we are, where this authorization came down, and what this is going to look like? Um, so, you know, the, what FDA said in, in the final analysis was pretty interesting. Um, the Biden administration had wanted to offer boosters to everyone. And uh, the FDA's advisory committee, VRPAC, had said, no, we don't think the evidence supports that. FDA hasn't actually, you know, outright gone against VRPAC, but at the same time, they have added so many groups to um, this EUA that a lot of people who want boosters are going to find a way to get a booster as a consequence of this EUA. What they've said is that people who are 65 and older qualify, as do people who are at high risk from COVID, either because of um, exposure to the to the the disease, which is covers healthcare workers, 
uh, teachers, daycare workers, people who work in grocery stores. I mean, it's a long list of people who can fit in under the exposure category. And then also people who are at high risk because of um, uh, health conditions. And again, that's another long list of people, people who um, you know, are obese, people who have diabetes. There's a long list of people who could now go to their pharmacy and say, I need to be boosted because I fit into, you know, the parameters of this EUA. Um, where it's going to get messy is that this EUA only covers the Pfizer vaccine. And, you know, just under half of the American uh, population that's been vaccinated got the Pfizer vaccine. So there's nothing here for people who got Moderna or people who got Johnson and Johnson. But it's, you know, widely known that some of those people have been seeking boosters anyway and may decide that they won't wait for the FDA to uh, authorize boosters of the Moderna vaccine or the J&J vaccine. And they may just go get themselves a, a you know, a Pfizer booster sort of going for a mix and match approach to their vaccine regimen. Is there anything stopping people who maybe don't fit those categories from getting a booster shot? Like I'm thinking about myself, like I'm probably not in any of those categories. Um, although I have put on quite a bit of COVID weight, but, um, but like if I want to go to CVS and get a, a booster shot, I can I go get one? I don't know what would stop you, Adam. I mean, it's always been um, an honor system. You know, for instance, during the initial rollout, when they, um, the, the only way anybody could stop anybody at that point was based on age. Once you get into, uh, you know, categories where people who had certain health conditions could step forward, you know, there was never any requirement that you prove that you were a diabetic or that you had hypertension or that you had any number of the conditions that were um, listed as putting you in a priority group. So, you know, I, I doubt very much if a pharmacist is going to ask you, you know, how do you qualify? Yeah. If you book the appointment, I think they're going to give you the vaccine. And, and just like a related question, is there any research, has anyone looked in kind of how willing Americans are to get a booster shot. I mean, obviously getting vaccinated the first time has been very polarizing in this country. Has anyone done looked into that and said, like, how willing will people be to, to get a third shot? I can answer that question. <laughs> so we've done some polling on it. Um, and it sounds like people who already were vaccinated, about three quarters of, of those folks say they plan to get a booster shot. But then if you look at it by who you voted for in 2020, because everything is looked at through a political lens. And unfortunately, this provides illuminating information. Um, a lot fewer vaccinated Trump voters plan to get a booster than vaccinated Biden voters. And even President Trump, who himself is vaccinated, he expressed ambivalence about getting a booster. And I don't know how much that influences people, but it seems like even folks who are like really on board with getting the vaccine the first time around may be sort of changing their minds about it or not feeling so eager to get a booster shot. But for the most part, it, it does, does sound like most people who got vaccinated will get a booster. 
Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I would say, though, you know, that if um, if the models are right and if we start to see the Delta wave coming under control in the country, that probably will also depress uptake of boosters. Um, you know, people are motivated to get vaccinated when they're afraid of what's before them. So zooming out from the United States where we're we're all debating whether to get a third dose, obviously much of the world is desperate for access to even a first one. And there was something of a hopeful note in your story. You spoke to Barney Graham, formerly of the NIH, who was hoping that, you know, between Delta and some of the other epidemiological trends, that conceivably the virus is trapped right now. And so if we can immunize as many people as possible around the world, we could be looking at, you know, kind of cresting the wave of of this virus. And so I guess my question is, you know, where are we on the global distribution of vaccine uh, process versus, you know, like how many months might we be away from from reaching something like herd immunity on a global scale? Oh, that's a long way off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to be, you know, a downer at this point, but, um, you know, many, many countries have still vaccinated a very small proportion of their people. Um, There are still far too few vaccines available to low and middle income countries. Uh, the, you know, part of the problem is the vaccine that, you know, in our part of the world has been produced to the largest degree is the Pfizer vaccine and it's the hardest one to deliver. Um, so, you know, in places where, um, cold chain is, is not necessarily, um, robust, you know, this is a very hard vaccine to get out into the last mile. Um, you probably will remember that uh, COVAX, which is that the um, enterprise that uh, the World Health Association, CEPI and Gavi have partnered on to try to procure vaccine doses for um, the you know, countries that can't buy them for themselves. They recently downgraded their estimate of how much vaccine they're going to be able to provide this year. And, you know, that may not be the end of that story. I I mean, I don't know that I actually think herd immunity can exist on a global scale, but, uh, you know, we're nowhere near bringing this virus under control across the world. Helen, I'm curious to know, you know, we've seen Dr. Tom Frieden, the former CDC director, um, really come out pretty strongly about this issue in the last week or two, taking aim uh, both at the Biden administration for not doing enough, not just in terms of donating vaccines, but also equipping nations to whom we're donating them with the cold chain requirements and, and helping uh, pay vaccinators or, or things like that. But he also is really taking aim at the the companies, Moderna and Pfizer in particular, for not sharing uh, their uh, expertise in their their patents uh, and and helping set up manufacturing in these countries. I'm just wondering, you know, we had the Pfizer CEO Albert Borla on CNBC on Wednesday and asked him about that because they say it's a it's a mid or, mid to long term goal of setting up mRNA manufacturing in these other places. Uh, how do you just reconcile what you're hearing from both sides about that? How do you think about it? Well, I don't think there's an quick or easy fix. I mean, you know, what has become very clear in this pandemic is that um, people will take care of their their own. And, uh, 
so the world definitely needs a lot more capacity and a lot more capacity spread out. You know, India was going to be the, the producer for much of the developing world. And then India got swamped by the Delta virus and India has an exported um, vaccine. You know, that was actually a foreseeable problem. Um, you know, there were people who had, were talking about the need to produce in small population countries because countries would close borders. Um, you know, if things got bad. Uh, going forward, you know, I think there's going to be a huge push to disseminate uh, capacity to produce around the world. Um, I s- suspect, you know, at least some of that is going to be uh, based on the mRNA platform, but it may not all be. And frankly, you know, what would be really useful at this point is if some of the other vaccines uh, that are much easier to be to administer could be um, pushed out in greater degrees. You know, J&J, still not a lot of product there, uh, but that vaccine could be very useful internationally. The AZ vaccine, you know, um, AstraZeneca, um, that vaccine will be really useful in an international setting. If Novavax can manage to, you know, consistently produce vaccine to high levels, you know, everybody has huge hopes for that vaccine. You know, having some of some other options available would be really, really helpful. And uh, hopefully that will start to happen soon. Helen, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, guys. The virus didn't arrive with a group of visitors from China where it originated, or from Italy, where it established its next major foothold. Instead, it likely rode along the breath of probably hundreds of different travelers from a variety of locations, each ferrying the infection and evading the porous controls that the federal government had put in place at U.S. airports. At the time, nobody knew what was happening. No one knew how much virus was being carried by people who showed no outward symptoms of the disease. These were people who might never manifest any signs of illness, but were still contagious. Without the ability to test people for the virus, we had no way of detecting its spread. We certainly had no way of stopping it. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb can now add published author to his long list of titles, which also includes board member of Pfizer and Illumina, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and CNBC contributor. His book about the pandemic, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic, was released Tuesday. You just heard him reading an excerpt from it. And he joins us now to talk about it. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, one of the themes in your book is how we thought we were prepared for something like this. But you point out that all those plans turned out to be what you call a technocratic illusion, which is just such an evocative phrase. Our stockpile was drastically insufficient. And at the core of the issue, you write that we prepared for the wrong pathogen. So why was the U.S. so convinced that the next pandemic would be a flu? And why were we so unable to pivot when it turned out to be something different? Well, all of the tabletop exercises that we had done, and I had been a part of some of those uh, prep for a potential pandemic with an influenza, including Crimson Contagion, which happened just before um, COVID ended up striking. And, you know, if you're looking at pandemic preparedness through the lens of a potential 
pathogen like influenza, the types of things you worry about and focus on are different. First of all, the preparations that we had made for flu were inadequate. Uh, and the, the stockpile is just one metaphor for that inadequacy where we had things in the stockpile that simply didn't work. Respirators that we had stockpiled didn't work. The masks were out of date. Certain contingencies that become very important in preparing for a coronavirus aren't as important when it comes to flu. For, so for example, diagnostic testing isn't going to be an essential component to actually responding to a pandemic with flu. And if you look back at the pandemic tabletop exercises like Crimson Contagion, diagnostic testing wasn't a big part of those exercises. There was no difficulty getting access to screening because with an influenza the incubation period is very short and people are typically contagious after they manifest symptoms. So getting people diagnosed while they're asymptomatic as a way to control the spread of the pathogen isn't as critical. And also the nation's installed base of testing equipment that's in every doctor's office that can test for influenza A or influenza B would be sufficient. You wouldn't have to do PCR testing and get the exact viral sequence of the strain that, that, that was infecting them. So you had an installed base of testing. So by looking at pandemic preparedness through the lens of influenza, things that became very important for a coronavirus were relegated when it came to um, trying to prep for a pandemic with uh, with influenza. So, Scott, in the book, you know, you're very critical of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You point out that in the early days of the pandemic, the agency, you know, they botched the development of the first SARS-CoV-2 test. They, you know, they failed to come up with a plan for widespread testing and, and actually impeded uh, rather than assisted the development of tests by outside commercial labs. And you also criticized the CDC for some of its public health guidelines, like establishing the six foot social distancing requirement you know, without evidence that that would help. So I guess the question here is, you know, can the CDC be fixed and should it be fixed? Meaning, should we be relying on the CDC in future pandemics or should the responsibilities for surveillance and response go somewhere else? I think it can be fixed and I think it has to be fixed. I don't think that when we engage in pandemic planning going forward and, and we come together and have a commission and try to reach a bipartisan consensus on what the new framework is going to look like, that we should be creating a new agency or creating a new Department of Homeland Security that's focused on pandemic planning like we did after 9-11. I think we need to vest these kinds of capabilities within CDC, but it's a reimagined CDC. It's a CDC that has an operational focus, has a national security mindset that isn't so retrospective, that's comfortable surfacing real-time information to inform active policy decision-making, even if it isn't certain. An even more fundamental challenge that we're going to face, in my view at least, is that there is now a, a large portion of the population that has lost confidence in public health decision-making in the setting of a crisis, that has lost confidence in the guidance that was issued, that felt that the recommendations were arbitrary, that they were inconsistent, that they weren't um, articulated in a way that people can, could find practical value from the issues of should I wear a mask, shouldn't I wear a mask. Things seemed arbitrary. They didn't seem science-based in many cases because they were arbitrary and they weren't grounded on good science. And the agency wasn't transparent about how speculative some of the recommendations were at the time that they were being made. And so people have now lost confidence in public health officials to issue guidance in a setting of a crisis. And this is this breaks down along ideological lines for sure. I mean, there is a right-left div divide on this, but it is much broader than that. I think it transcends just pure politics. And so we're going to need to earn back the public's trust and convince them that public health agencies should be empowered in a setting of a public health crisis before we even have the discussion about how then to, to empower public health agencies going forward in the setting of a public health crisis. And there's going to it's going to require some self-awareness on the part of public health officials that there were certain aspects of what we did 
that also failed. So sort of on that point, you know, your book does focus mostly on the agency level and you deliberately avoid framing too many of the failures in political terms. But so many of the decisions in question, whether federal, state or local, are made by elected officials. And so considering that voting is pretty much the only thing most readers of your book can do to influence the nation's future pandemic preparedness, what should we be saying to our leaders and our political candidates? Like, what would a pandemic smart platform look like? Yeah, I I think that um, voters should care about public health and voters should care about candidates being willing to um, invest in strong public health measures, strong public health infrastructure. And that transcends just pandemic preparedness. I mean, this pandemic showed how excessively vulnerable our society is because of um, systemic challenges that we face with getting adequate health care to communities in society that were made excessively vulnerable by co- to COVID precisely because they lacked access to care. They faced bias in how care was delivered. Um, they worked in jobs where they didn't have the social capital at work to demand conditions that would keep them safe, something as simple as a mask on the job, a high-quality mask if you were working in a confined space that was conducive to spread. So I think voters should care about politicians being willing to take strong positions on trying to reinvigorate the nation's public health. That's why I, I, I say, you know, we have to have this discussion about how to properly empower resource C- the CDC, how to change its orientation, how to give it more of a national security mindset. But all of that is predicated on a belief that you think public health institutions should be strong. And there's a lot of people who are very skeptical of that notion. And it's it's a lot of conservatives. It's a lot of, you know, my 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 fellow conservatives. But it's broader than that. And that really worries me. Building back that consensus, I think, is going to be difficult. Well, I wonder, what do you see as your role in helping accomplish that? Um, You have this unique position now. You were in government. You're no longer in government. You sit on in many different seats of of power and access. Do you ever think about going back in? Would you be a sort of pandemic preparedness czar? Are you the person to coordinate this on the government level? Or are you more effective uh, from this sort of more private sector role you've now taken on? I haven't really thought about, you know, how I could be effective in or where I could be most effective from in in this debate. I mean, I'm, I, I look at this through the lens of where I am right now. And I think I could be effective in trying to just articulate why it's important, why why it's important that we have strong public health institutions that are able to execute this kind of a mission. It's not just about building a better CDC, but it's, it's about looking at why certain communities were made excessively vulnerable and how do we rectify that. So Scott, what's your access like today uh, with the Biden administration? Obviously, you know, in the book, you talked about having like a lot of access being at the White House under the Trump administration. You know, what is it like under a Democratic president today? Are they are people listening to you? Um, I have dialogue with uh, with members of the Biden administration. Uh, I've I had pre-existing relationships with a number of people who are in um, in roles right now where they have involvement in the response to COVID. And I maintain those relationships and maintain that dialogue. I'm going to preserve the uh you know, the, my, the discretion of the people who reach out to me and, and, and talk to me on it from time to time or on a more routine basis. But I feel that if I have a strong opinion on something that the Biden administration, people in the Biden administration who are in positions of authority and able to, you know, execute on aspects of this response are um, willing to take my call. And I'm very grateful for that. So last question, you know, in the book, 
uh, or rather you dedicate the book to your three daughters. And, you know, as we mentioned before, you were on CNBC most days, sometimes starting at 6 a.m. Throughout that whole pandemic, you're on several boards. You have, I think, at least two day jobs at AEI and NEA. And then plus you wrote a book. So I guess this is the the sort of like talk show question. But how did you do it? Um, All my free time was spent writing this book. And that's why I dedicated the book to... uh, to my family because I, I really was uh, absent over the last year. I mean, I, I spent every moment that I had that I wasn't engaged in something where I had to, you know, work on behalf of NEA or uh, something related to AI or Pfizer or some of the other business engagements that I have writing this book. So it consumed all my free time. Well, I bet they're excited that you'll be done with book publicity soon and they'll get to hang out with daddy. <laughs> Thanks, Meg. <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you drink through a mask. <laughs> you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.